welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director for Energy Makes America Great. And each week here on America's Voice for Energy, I have the opportunity to interview a variety of experts on the topics of each week's column. I write a news-based, energy-themed column each and every week that is published in many places on the Internet, including Breitbart.com, RedState.com, and the American Spectator at Spectator.org. As I was writing my column for this week, the UN Climate Conference was concluding in Paris. Now, we'll talk throughout our show today about that conclusion, but it gave me the opportunity. I used it as a launching point. It wasn't so much that I wrote about the conference in Paris, but rather I used it as a launching point to say, okay, now that that is over, what is next? What is the environmentalist plan now? And uh, from there, I looked at what are the costs to the American consumer, to the American citizen? And we're going to discuss that cost element more heavily in the second half of our show today. But in our first half of the show, we're going to talk about the Paris Conference. We're going to talk about climate change or global warming, uh, as they used to call it. We're going to talk about that in our first half of the show. And I couldn't have a better guest with me for the first half of the show. I'm delighted to have Tom Weissmuller with me, and he is a NASA meteorologist and a member of the Johnson Space Center Climate Group. Tom was interviewed in New York and uh, at the time of the climate conference, and he's going to tell us about some of these interesting things. So, Tom, thanks for joining me today. I'm delighted to have you with us for the first time on America's Voice for Energy. Well, Marita, I am honored to be on your show, and uh, I do read your column regularly. Uh, you write brilliantly, and like I say, uh, it, it is an extreme compliment for me to be interviewed by you. So thank oh, you, well, and uh, it's great. You're, you're too kind, but, you know, as, as you and I were talking about off the air, I, I don't come from a background in, in any of the things that you're an expert in, and so that's why I'm so honored to have experts such as yourself who are willing uh, to give your time to, to contribute to this, this topic. It's such an important topic, and, and uh, coming from a communications background, I'm so grateful that people such as yourself lend me your expertise. So let's start off, because we're starting with this Paris conference. Uh, you know, were you in Paris? No, I wasn't in Paris. In fact, that was one of the neat things uh, of the whole uh, thing. Not everybody can be in Paris. And, and by the way, uh, <clears throat> this is an aside. My view of the Paris conference is that it was a 40,000-person shopping spree, pre-holiday, pre-Christmas shopping spree on the Champs-Élysées uh, for the, all these people attending. They would, they would eat at Michelin-rated restaurants. They would stay at uh, four-figure-a-night uh, hotels, and that doesn't make a difference whether you're talking euros or dollars, uh, and basically give a giant boost to the Parisian economy, which has been fairly lackluster. Uh, and, and that is the real effect of the conference, because the, physical, the, the actual effects are almost negligible. And the thing is that uh, at that time, I wasn't in Paris. I wasn't... Uh, having a grand time uh, 
doing my Christmas shopping. I was actually in New York City uh, going around with a group of people to UN uh, missions, uh, consulates, speaking to their uh, UN ambassadors, their consul generals, uh, mainly third world countries, but I was always privileged to uh, also privileged to go to the uh, the Soviet Union, not the Soviet Union, Russia actually, and uh, speak with, uh, with with their ambassador and, and their climate expert. And the the gist of what I was trying to do uh, with the people that were with me actually. Hang on a sec, was, Tom. I just hang sure. on a sec. I just I just want to emphasize for our listeners. I want to make sure they caught this because the first time you told me this, I didn't get it. So I just want to make sure my listeners, you were in New York City going to the the offices of these countries. Is that correct? That's correct. The, the UN missions mainly. Uh, okay. And I, I don't know the UN missions. I don't understand that. I'm sorry. Okay. Almost every country uh, has an ambassador to the United Nations. Okay. And, okay. And that ambassador uh, is usually they have a small staff, and uh, they rent office space in New York. They're granted diplomatic status. They have uh, the diplomatic license plates on their cars. They're all over the place. Uh, in fact, there was a big scandal in New York uh, a couple of years ago because they weren't paying their parking tickets or something. I remember that scandal. Yeah. yeah. And, and, the, and the State Department got involved. But that's, that's an aside. The, the fact yes. is. New York has many, many diplomatic missions to the United Nations, and uh, these these people uh, have a voice. They are almost all uh, appointed by their country's presidents or prime ministers, and they represent the interests of that nation in the United Nations. And, okay, I, I, uh, was not, I, I wasn't clear on that. Yeah, once in a while... The, the, the presidents and prime ministers go to the U.N. and make speeches, too. It's usually in October that happens. But for the normal workings of the United Nations, the resolutions they pass and, and the, the things they get involved in, they rely on their ambassadors to the United Nations. And those are the people that we were meeting with. Uh, okay. All right. Now that that's clear, continue. I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but I just no, no, I, okay. I really wasn't clear because when the first time you told me that, I thought you were going to each and every country, and I'm like, wow, what a what a job. Mm. No, and no, no such luck. <laughs> uh, and, 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 oh, I don't know that a lot of these countries you'd want to go to. Yeah, and you know, and that's one of the problems. You, you almost hit it on the head right there, because many of the countries that we visited are very undeveloped. Uh, they don't have an electrical grid. They don't have reliable power. Uh, if they have power in their major cities, what they do in the morning, they come to their offices and they turn on the diesel generator. And the diesel generator powers up the building and goes off and on a couple of times a day. And uh, that is what life is like if you're in the urban areas in, in some of the uh, West African countries. If you go further inland, there is no electricity. And, 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 and here's the, the real tragedy, is that people will spend, they'll send their kids out into the local uh, uh, forest and have them gather up wood for a couple of hours a day so they can boil water so that when they drink it, they don't get river blindness. And you, you've, you've got to understand that this is subsistence, bare subsistence living. And the intellect and intelligence of these people are just devoted to staying alive. They're not contributing to humanity. They're not discovering cures for cancer. They're not uh, 
doing the things that we take for granted. And what's the difference? They don't have reliable power, reliable energy, so they can boil the water on an electric stove, for instance, send their kids to school, uh, have them become educated, contribute to the world, also build up and contribute their economies to the world because their economies are shambles because of this lack of power. And here's uh, the uh, president comes to Africa and he, make, he makes a speech, and, and I am astounded how our president could say such a thing, but I'm paraphrasing, but in my, my interview in, in this uh, French Cameroon newspaper, uh, I, I had the quote exactly, but he basically says that he doesn't want African kids to have a car uh, or maybe air conditioning until a way to power them uh, in, in a green way is developed. And uh, basically he's saying you stay in your huts and you continue boiling your water by burning that wood until we, quote, discover a better way to power it. And what happens if they don't? Are they condemned, condemned to poverty the rest of their lives? Uh, that's not Apparently the way the world so. should work. Well, that's not the way the world should work. Uh, no, I agree. You, you're right. Apparently so. And they will be if they agreed to the limitations that the Paris Conference is trying to impose on them. So, my, yeah, I want my, before yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Before we before we go there, and that's where we're going to go next. I, I just wanted to interject. Have you seen, and you probably have, uh, but it was really influential for me when I very first got into this business, into this line of work. It's not really a business; it's a line of work. But when I first got into this line of work, I watched a movie called Mind Your Own Business. Have you seen that movie? No, I have not. You haven't. Well, it's it's a it's a it was put out by um, oh Ann and Phelan Ann McElroy. Is it is it available on the internet? I think so. Okay, and it's called Mind. Yeah, it was the first movie that Ann Mac Mac uh, and Phelan. You know who I'm talking about, but I've lost his last name at the moment. But it's called Mind Your Own Business, and it was really influential to me. And he literally, Fetalum, um was a, a journalist who was basically on the green side of things. And he went into, and I don't remember the town, but it was not in Russia, but it was in the former Soviet Union, one of those countries, and I don't remember because I didn't plan on talking about this today, but it so connects with what you're talking about. And he went into this, into wherever this, this was, and um, it, it may come to my mind before we finish, but he went into this country where, where a, a company wanted to put in a gold mine in this community. And this community is, you know, it was in, like I said, former Soviet uh country, and he one of the small countries, and they wanted to put in a gold mine, and this gold mine would have provided jobs, and you know, it's one of these little country, little t communities where all the young people leave because there's no work, and the old people are literally freezing to death, and this co company wanted to come in and build a gold mine, and the environmentalists came in and launched a huge campaign to stop this gold mine. And he interviews people in the in the country, and he says that this uh, project is what really switched his thinking because he realized 
how these people lived, how close to, um, you know, they weren't literally in huts because they were in the snow country, but how close to freezing to death they were and so forth. He then went to three other countries, one in Africa, where uh, environmentalists were opposing projects, and he, he shows footage of these people going into the mountains to cut down trees, and they can only go as far as they can walk in one day, you know, and come back with the wood on their back to, to cook, and that the environmentalists are there saying, you know, this is pristine and we should not take away uh, these people's character, their rural charm, and things like that. It's a very interesting movie, and it was, uh, it was very influential in my early development of my view of, of these issues, and it's called Mind Your Own Business, and my, not mind, but mine, because it's about a mining project, and so that's how it started. So uh, I'm so grateful, Tom, that you're able to be with us for, our, for two segments today on America's Voice for Energy, because we are out of time for our first segment. So if you'll hang on, and listeners, if you'll, you'll hang on as well, we'll be back with Thomas Weissmuller in just a few moments. Stay tuned on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We're having a fabulous conversation with Tom Weissmuller about particularly where where we left off is talking about some of these uh, what they call the LDCs, the least developed countries, and his interaction with them in their offices in the UN regarding uh, the agreement or the supposed agreement uh, coming out of the UN Climate Conference in Paris. So, Tom, I kind of interrupted you to talk in our last segment about uh, the movie Mind Your Own Business, and you were just, before I interrupted you, you were just about to tell us about the specific meetings you had with many of the uh, the folks from these countries in their UN offices. So please continue. Well, one of the things my objective was to, uh, and it, it, it fits in beautifully with what you just said, and I'm going to have to look that, 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 uh, that film up. Uh, basically, 
we said to these countries, you deserve to develop your own resources. You should not be told by anybody that you shouldn't develop resources that are available to you and uh, create uh, elect uh, electricity so that you can employ these resources and you can become a worthy trading partner as opposed to waiting for handouts from the West. So you need to have control of your own environment. You need to be able to uh, create your own jobs and not just be, uh, be a customer for a foreign power uh, wanting to impose their economies on yours. And uh, most of, uh, our objective was to get these, these countries to, number one, put a zipper clause in their agreement, whatever they agreed to. And a zipper clause is something that, that's a term that comes from union negotiations, and it basically allows you to unzip whatever you've agreed to if certain conditions aren't met. And almost every single one of them that we talked to, with actually one exception, uh, said that they would do that. And the, uh, they had actually two of these what I call zipper clauses. One was uh, make your pledge, whatever it is, uh, conditioned upon what, number one, what you want to do, and, and you know, there's some motivation for, for cleaning up your own act, and two, uh, make it conditional upon receipt of money from the, the West. And uh, the reason I did that is because we already knew that the, uh, the American House of Representatives and the Senate very wisely uh, sent the message to President Obama uh, basically saying, we're not going to give any money for this. Uh, so we knew that there, that money wouldn't be coming. Right. Second th and the second thing is we said, you know, uh, make sure that uh, you agree to what you want, not what someone else wants. Uh, and uh, we were, we've got a very good reception. The, the, the big problem they all uh, had was, well, what about places where the sea level is rising, the coastal areas? And uh, I gave them a one-sheet explanation as to why sea level and CO2 are just not connected. And that's actually available on my website, uh, which is colderside.com. Colderside is all one word. And, of course, .com you can figure it out. Uh, and on the media page, and I have a sea level and CO2 page and a temperature and CO2 page. And it's interesting reading, and you learn a lot. Uh, but mainly that in places that don't move up and down, which are what I call tectonically inert, and there are many places like that in the world, uh, sea level has been very, very linear and uniform. Even during the same period, while CO2 has skyrocketed and accelerated upward 38% more than in 1880, and uh, there's not any signal whatsoever that sea level is reacting to that increase in CO2. So if sea level doesn't react on the upside with a 38% increase, if Paris wildly succeeds, and they're able to reduce CO2 emissions by 1%, there is no way that that 1% will ever be visible in the rise or fall of sea level. And keep in mind that humans only contribute less than 4% of all CO2 uh, to the air every year, and actually half of that is reabsorbed. So the, the, the net human contribution is under 2%. And if you're able to reduce that 2%, 
by 1% or some percentage. That is just totally not visible whatsoever in either the temperature record or the sea level record. So they're voting to curtail their economies, stop their development, on the basis for something that will have no impact whatsoever on either temperature or on their, their sea level. And that message got through. And I'm very, very so glad I, I, it got I through. A, sure, go ahead. I have a couple questions. A couple questions specifically about what you just said. One is, you said we. Who else was with you in these meetings? Okay. Uh, I was with a small group of people, uh, some of whom came from the uh, LaRouche group. And LaRouche, uh, I think he ran for president a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, okay. They, they at least on the climate issue, were exactly where I am, exactly, with precision. And they, they, uh, they to see the lack of development in the third world as a huge negative, and I did too. So on that issue, we were on the same wavelength, and uh, we worked quite well together. Uh, they were they were well known to these people. I wasn't, by the way. Uh, okay. This is my first first time that I actually. So they were. Good. That's that's part of how you were able to get in to, in to meet with these people. Yes, I was invited to come using my uh, ex NASA expertise, if you want to call it that. Uh -huh. my, my, my membership on the again, I, I was trained as a meteorologist. I worked for NASA during the moon landings, and then I ended up in uh, aircraft engines and insurance. And uh, I've done a lot of things in, in my life. Uh, so, But some of the mathematics I developed while working at Pratt & Whitney, the jet engine manufacturer, is, uh, is actually used by almost all the climatologists in the world. And, uh, so, and I don't get any money for it either. It's, uh, it was given a royalty-free. So if you use a, a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet polyfit function, you're actually using code that I wrote in the 1970s. Uh, so that's, and again, it's royalty-free. Uh, nobody pays me for it. It's my uh, my contribution to uh, to climate science. And, well, you're you're uh, obviously a lot smarter. You're obviously a lot smarter than I am. My second question is: Were you with the people that you were meeting with at the UN in New York City? Were these uh, were these the people who then went to Paris uh, and, and, and were part of these negotiations? Or were the people you met with in New York City, did they then um, communicate uh, to people in Paris what to do? How, how, did, that, how did that work? Your, your second hit it right on the head. They communicated to their uh, host, their mother countries, and to the people in Paris. And... Uh, Country after country, uh, in their uh, pledges, put pledge conditioned on international support. And uh, the, the interesting thing is, I, I, uh, I, I'll give you one example, the Sudan. One of their aims was to increase the uh, forest area of the Sudan by 25%, and that's in what they agreed to. Now, the, the irony is that the increase in CO2 from looking down on Earth from the satellites, you can see that in the Sahel <clears throat> in Africa, the forested area has increased by 17% already. And uh, that is increased CO2 is good for plant growth, 
supports it, and it allows growth with less water. Right. So it's the... You know, and I was going to ask you about that because, you know, we've had in the United States, we've had bumper crops this year of corn and soybeans, and and I've not heard anyone connect that to CO2. Oh, oh, is a very, very clear connection. And, uh, the, the, of course, we're, we're using corn in the wrong way by producing ethanol. Of course. Uh, and, and that has messed up the world in, 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 in many, many different ways. And that's probably a, a subject for one of your other programs. So uh, I'm, I'm going to try to stick to Paris on this one. Yeah, yeah, so let's get back to it. But I, just, I wasn't sure how the logistics that, you know, if, these, if the people you were meeting with at the U.N. then went to Paris or you were meet, meeting with them during Paris and they were communicating yeah, with their representatives. Yeah, a couple of them did go to Paris. In fact, uh, they, one of them we had to cut short because he had to catch his plane. Uh, but thoroughly uh, understood where we were coming from and did uh, act accordingly. In other words, uh, all these countries, by the way, have a one-year opt-out clause. They can, because they've been party uh, to this UN conference, uh, these uh, this IPCC conferences for many, many years, the provisions uh, that they agreed to said after four years of membership, you can opt out. Well, the fact is they've all been in there for four years, which means they can opt out at the end of one year if they want. If something isn't working right, they can say, forget it. We are not going to be committed to anything we committed to. Really? And, really? And we're out. Yes, yes, yes. It's great. I'm, I'm very, very pleased because basically it puts the monkey on the back of the other uh, people who are insisting on, on, on changing them. And, you know, and, and I advised them, I said, look, if the West or developed countries give you help, be careful what you accept. Only accept things that create jobs in your country, make your country more competitive in the world, are good for your country and only your country. And if you get that, accept the aid. Make sure there's no strings attached. That, that's the advice I was giving them. Uh, and, and we've only got a couple minutes left, Tom. But, sure. how, how, you know, how did they respond? Did their eyes light up and, and they say, wow, what a great idea? Did they say, get out of our office? You know, what, what, no, how no, did they no, respond? No. They, 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 they agreed wholeheartedly and they said, you know, you, you are doing, you are suggesting that we do what we really wanted to do to begin with. And that's wonderful. So I was basically preaching to the choir, but I didn't know it was the choir when I got in there. You know? Well, you, you gave them reinforcement. As I was taught early on when I got into to this line of work and I got into energy, someone said to me, don't worry that you're preaching to the choir because the choir needs the tools. No, no, you're absolutely right. And that's and, and, what you gave these people. You gave them kind of the affirmation uh, to go go into these negotiations in Paris and, and be strong. And and so yes, and, we and, and again we just work? got we've got one minute left. So yeah, want, you know, how do you feel about the Paris Agreement and your involvement? The Paris Agreement is loose enough so that every one of those countries will benefit from it. There's no downside, and, there's, and they can get out whenever they want. And I say it was basically a paid shopping spree for the people going there. It was just shameful how much money they spent. And, and you know, I do want to emphasize that the NASA TRCS group that I'm part of uh, is willing to help on climate questions, uh, occasionally even send speakers. 
we want to contribute. We have made our services available to every person running for office, not just presidential candidates, but anybody who wants decent, good, hard climate advice can come to us and he can contact me uh, or, or Hal Warren. Uh, or you, you, you'll pass it through to us. Certainly, I will. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. We can give us those websites again, and then we're out of time. Well, the website is colderside.com. Just uh, and, and the right stuff climate group. The right stuff climate group has a website as well, don't they? Yes, they do. Uh, I don't have it at the top of my head or on my computer. Okay, that's fine. We'll just send people to your website, theculverside.com. And we've been talking right. with Tom Weissmuller uh, about the the. UN Climate Conference in Paris. And, Tom, uh, it's been fascinating uh, talking with you, and I hope people will visit your website. Thank you, Maria, and thank you for what you do. You're a great service to our nation, and I appreciate it. <laughs> You're so kind. Thank you so much. And, listeners, please stay tuned, and we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. As I mentioned at the introduction of this show, today we're talking about, uh, we started talking about the Paris Climate Conference, the UN Climate Conference that took place in Paris uh, last week. And we had a fascinating discussion with Tom Weissmuller on uh, his in influence in the uh, discussions in Paris. And now in our second half of our show, we're going to talk about the economic impact of the environmentalist plans. As I talked about in my column, and we haven't really specifically addressed here on the show, but as I addressed in my column this week where I talked about what is next, and I talked about the environmentalist plan, their new kind of campaign moving forward, is called Keep It in the ground. And so their goal is to keep fossil fuels in the ground, to not extract them. And I thought, well, if that's what their goal is, 
what's the impact, the economic impact? What's it going to mean to the average person out there? You that are listening, the guy on the street, your your friends, your family, what is that going to mean for them? So in my column this week that I titled, With Paris Climate Conference Complete, What's Next and What Does It Cost? Um, I, I looked at many states and what are their budgets and you know of course my home base of New Mexico uh, it, I had seen an article in the newspaper uh, about their budget deficit so I did a quick search to see what are other states especially states that have a lot of oil and gas development in their states what are their budgets looking at just as a result of low oil prices. Now, we're not talking about eliminating. These numbers that we're talking about right now are not based on eliminating fossil fuels. These are just based on low oil prices. So, you know, it doesn't take a lot to extrapolate this out into a bigger picture. So in my column, I address six states specifically. And I have with us today uh, Carol Cagle, who is the media director for the uh, New Mexico Prosperity Project. And he had written something about this that uh, came across my email. And so I contacted Carol and said, you know, can you give me a quote for my column? And, and I'm delighted that Carol is joining us today. And Carol's a friend of mine from Albuquerque, New Mexico. So Carol, thanks for being with us today on America's Voice for Energy, I think for the first time, correct? That's correct. Hi, Marita, and I'm glad to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. So you've looked specifically, as, as the New Mexico Prosperity Project, you've looked specifically at the impact of the low oil prices on uh, the, the New Mexico economy. And what have you found? Well, the, the context of this, by the way, I think is important, which is that uh, the as everyone knows, the oil prices are down, and that leads to uh, what's not often seen, including in a state like New Mexico. The average person, the consumer, the voter, sees the benefits at the pump, but what they do not see or often think about is the negative impact to the state uh, general fund revenues. General fund means basically just the big pot of money for state taxes that is used by state government, the legislature appropriating to spend money for all the things that people use and generally want, state police, highways, schools, health services, all those things. But uh, there is a definite impact uh, in New Mexico that few really recognize from oil and gas. I appreciate you. I appreciate you making that connection because you know I do a lot of radio interviews all over the country, including Albuquerque. But I hadn't, you know, made that connection of these. Well, well the consumer likes the low gasoline prices at the pump, myself included. That, and I often reference it to you know jobs and things like that. But I hadn't, I hadn't uh, previously, until you just mentioned that, made that direct connection between 
the, the low prices at the pump and the state budget, the state general fund. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, sure. And what it means specifically is that there's a group, an organization, a nonprofit called the New Mexico Tax Research Institute, which did a very comprehensive and deep study, uh, research study of how much oil and gas contributes to the New Mexico State Government General Fund. Uh, that's very recent. It's up to through the 2013 uh, fiscal year, I believe. And do you have a website or anything how people can find that? Do you know? Just look for nmtri.org. Okay. NMTRI, Tax Research Institute is what it means. Okay. You will see on there the link, the specific uh, citation for the study. It essentially, as anyone who goes there sees, will see, about 30%, 31.5% to be precise, of the revenue for uh, state government comes from the oil and gas industry. The total recurring general fund dollars uh, spent are, in this study of 2013, about $5.5 billion. And out of that, oil and gas attributes or contributes $1.7 billion. So obviously it's massive, and uh, and yet, uh, as I was saying, very few people really get it and uh, know that that's the case. So uh, going back to your question is that our issue about the, you know, the uh, proposals from environmentalists about keep it in the ground, we've got a major problem here and it will be even more of a problem if if the oil is kept in the ground because uh, the state legislators looking toward the january legislative session and how to appropriate money for all those services i mentioned schools and so forth they're already kind of gritting their teeth and wondering if they're going to have to uh, maybe not cut but it's going to be really tight uh, now let's let's, let's focus a little bit more if we can. What? Who specifically? If if these cuts now in in the research I did, and I admit it was cursory because I'm I write a column. I have a limited word count, so it's not yeah. an exhaustive report that I write every week. But yeah. um, in in the states that I looked at, New Mexico actually has the least problem, which is surprising. Uh, but when you think of New Mexico and you think of budgets, because the, the numbers for New Mexico are a projected uh, $30 million budget shortfall, where in Oklahoma, they're looking at a possible $1 billion budget shortfall. So who, where is that impact going to be felt, that $30 million budget shortfall in New Mexico? Who's going to be hurt uh, by that? What services are apt to be cut, and what will happen to New Mexico's citizens as a result of this? Well, that will be up to what the legislators do. This coming legislative session starts in the third week in January, as always, and it's strictly oriented toward tax and spend, basically. So that will be the venue and the forum to make those decisions. Uh, who will be cut? You know, that I don't know that anyone will be cut at this point um, because New Mexico has also had increases in a few other categories. But there's definitely the legislators that have been meeting on the Legislative Finance Committee are somewhat wary of what's going to happen. Uh, now, in your quote, yeah. in your quote that you gave me, 
uh, for my column. You gave me a special quote, and I thank you for that. Uh, You brought up an interesting point, and, and that is that the very entities, such as schools, particularly I want to focus on, Uh, that benefit from these oil and gas funds, these are the same entities who... who want to? Who are anti-oil and gas? I guess is what I'm trying to say. That's uh, the irony in the what you're focusing on there. The either by ignorance or just wishful thinking, I think a lot of the progressive slash liberal forces, environmental forces, tend to want the benefits, but they don't want to look at the goose that lays the golden egg, as it were, Mm -hmm. which is the oil and gas industry. Uh, So that's a big issue. Uh, There are two main factors that will that affect what the uh, industry pays into the general revenue fund and therefore available to go out in the form of services. One of those is the price of oil. And I'll go back to that in just a sec about what why there should be con- concern looking toward next fiscal year. But the other one are uh, is regulations and uh, things that deter and detract from a productive sector, oil and gas sector. And that's what you we're talking about here from those that want to, quote, keep it in the ground. Uh, that would be done presumably through an entangling mess of regulations and prohibitions. And it's hard enough to be in business in any sector. And oil and gas is not for the faint of heart, as everybody in the in the field knows. It's certainly so adding adding, uh, you know, to the overall down in decrease in the pricing, you add those entangling, you know, kind of uh, uh, issues of re- restraining uh, the productivity sure. of the sector. Those two, it doesn't seem too logical to, if ever there was a bad time, this is probably it, to keep piling on. Let me just give you one, give you and the listeners one fact here. The, there's some reason for concern because the uh, state government executive branch has based its avenue, revenue estimates for next fiscal year on oil being at $51 a barrel for current year and about $56 for next year, which is way below what it is. Uh, currently, so that's obviously they're going to have to redo their numbers, and yes. they're going to start bringing on this crunch. Uh, you know, it's fallen below forty dollars a barrel, and whether it'll stay that way, I think. You know, Wall Street Journal and others, industry estimates don't see any big uptick during 2016 in that price per barrel. So that triggers back around once again to less money available for schools, uh, health services. Oh, Medicaid, of course, has been going up rapidly uh, because New Mexico is one of those states that took the bargain of increasing the number of people that are on Medicaid and the hundreds of millions going out for that. So the crunch time is, is coming, but some people are not really yet aware that it's just looming over the horizon. Uh, except for maybe the state legislative budgeteers. Well, I, 
appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, Carol, on America's Voice for Energy, so we can uh, draw attention to that. And I hope that our listeners will will talk to their friends and their family about this, the economic impact, but especially about the the environmental uh, plan, these the antis, uh, their plan uh, to keep it in the ground. Carol, we've just got a few seconds left here on America's Voice for Energy uh, for this segment. Where can people find uh, the New Mexico Prosperity Project? It's NewMexicoProsperity.org. And the, the name of the piece that you wrote that I originally read and, and contacted you as a result of, what was the name of that piece? Do you remember? That was based on our weekly newsletter. We we do, uh, it's just a routine headline that will be seen. We maintain those newsletters, which get filed in the form of a blog that's on our website. So okay. whatever the most recent, uh, or probably next to recent by the time people check it out, whatever our most recent news posting is, that will be the one you're talking about. Okay. And for our listeners, uh, because we record this and people listen at different times, we're, this show originally airs on uh, December 17th of 2015, so it would be your newsletter around that time. We're out of time. Carol Cagle, my friend, executive, I mean, media director for the New Mexico Prosperity Project, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Hello, I'm Pat Rulo, hostess of Speak Up and Stay Alive, the voice for patient safety. Now heard every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. right here at americaswebradio.com. You're listening to americaswebradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been talking about the environmentalist plan to keep oil in the ground. This is their next campaign now that the uh, conference in Paris is done. And I'm honored for our final segment today to have my friend Andy Caldwell joining us. And this is such a special treat because Andy has his own radio show that airs in uh, the Santa Barbara area, the coast of California, and I'm a frequent guest on his show, and I'm delighted that now he's a guest with me on my show. Kind of we get to scratch each other's back from time to time. So, Andy, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Before we get too far, please tell my listeners about your role there with Colab. Well, COLAB uh, is an acronym. It stands for the Coalition of Labor, Agriculture, and Business. And 25 years ago, 
we realized that there was no segment of the economy or the community that could take on the radical environmental, no growth, progressive machine that is on the central coast here. So we formed a coalition, and my primary job is to serve as a government watchdog and a business advocate at the local level versus as a you know state or national. And so, we created the radio show as a means to communicate to the public what what's going on. So while I'm focused more on national issues, you are looking specifically out for the people within your direct listening audience. Right. So, you know, I know that you have worked hard uh, uh, when we, you and I finally met after talking on the radio for, for a long time, I don't know, several years. Uh, it was at a, and it was an event that you brought me into town to speak for, and I thank you for that. And it was a rally, uh, no on P, and uh, you, you were successful in that. Can you tell us what that was about? Well, um, this is a, it was a perfect example of hyperbole and rhetoric being more important than facts and reality. Uh, the, there was a, a group called 350.org, which you know of. They're international in scope. Um, they, they were trying to do this, that, and the other, and they were not successful, so they reinvented themselves. They created a fake organization calling themselves Water Guardians, and even though we don't frack here on the Central Coast, there's no fracking on the Central Coast because our oil just isn't conducive to fracking, and there's no need to frack. Um, they nonetheless tried to make the case that fracking was threatening water resources, and therefore they called themselves the Water Guardians, and they were going to save our water supply from the evil oil industry uh, and their frack jobs. And so anyway, the whole thing was supposedly about water, not oil, but the, what they basically were trying to do is being able to shut down not just injection or frack or not just fracking but injection of anything and it would have just shut down the existing oil operations well congratulations congratulations on killing uh their effort uh to to stop to stop that the drilling but in in santa barbara um there was a spill a a few months back uh from a, a a pipeline leak, and they shut down, as a result, they shut down those pipelines, and uh, from my understanding, they may be shut down for as long as five years. Yeah, well, here's the Well, of course, you and I know the environmentalists want them shut down forever, I'm sure. Right. Well, here's the deal. We have both onshore and offshore oil here in Santa Barbara County, and this particular pipeline, what it did is it took the oil from the offshore oil industry, the offshore rigs, and it went to an Exxon process, not a refinery as much as an Exxon processing facility. And from there it got piped, piped further. It could go to Texas, Bakersfield, Los Angeles, or, or up north to northern California. Well, the onshore pipeline broke. It, it, it corroded and broke. The oil ran down a gully under the freeway to the ocean. And the feds, the feds, you're supposed to call the federal equivalent of 911 when there's a spill. Well, instead of the locals who found it being able to respond, 
once they call the feds, the feds said, don't touch anything because you might screw up the operation. And it took them 24 hours to get out here. And so instead of just being able to berm the oil or plug the dike and do this, that, and the other, pretty much nothing was done. And maybe 20 or 30,000 gallons or so may have gone into the ocean. Um, but the bottom line is it was cleaned up literally within a matter of weeks. But the, the feds who were in charge of pipelines, because this is an inter, interstate pipeline, it goes all the way to Texas, are now taking their sweet time inspecting all the pipelines that are operated by the company on the Central Coast. So now the offshore platforms are shut down and the Exxon facility is shut down because they won't give them an emergency permit to truck or rail car the oil out of here. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize it was that extreme. It reminds me, of course, of the, the Gold King mine spill in New Mexico. Actually, it started in Colorado, but a, a lot of the damage was in, in New Mexico. Uh, that the EPA bungled the job, and it sounds uh, a lot like it just reminds me of that story. Well, I think this is one of those things that, you know, the Obama administration does it. Instead of just saying, okay, the pipeline got fixed again within a matter of days, and instead of saying, okay, well, over the course of the next couple of months or years, we're going to, we're going to, we, the Fed pipeline inspection group, are going to be looking over your shoulder and mandating this, that, and the other tests and this, that, and the other. In other words, production could have resumed, and they could have been checking the pipeline and let production resume. But instead, they're dragging their feet. At first, we were told one to two years, and now we're hearing three to five years. They, yeah, could, that's rebuild what... the, they could rebuild the pipeline in that amount of time. Yeah, but of course, you'd never get a permit to do that. Probably not, but, you know, I mean, this is not going through, for the most part, these pipelines don't go through residential areas. We're a, even though we're, it, this is hard for some people to believe that have never been here, but this part of California is rural, and we only have about 5 to 7% of the areas developed. The rest of it is rural. It's either for, uh, for, quote-unquote forest, i.e. forest with no trees, <laughs> or, or it's farmland. So what's been the economic impact to the county? Uh, what, what's going to happen long-term with the economics of the county if they keep this pipeline closed? Because, I mean, they've closed, they've closed the platforms, they've closed the Exxon facility, but there's tax consequences as well. Absolutely. Bottom line, oil is taxed as property. And, of course, the property taxes of the Exxon, the Exxon facility and the Venico facility, there's another oil company, Venico, those are two of the top ten taxpayers in the region. So we're going to lose two out of the top ten taxpayers because their, their property is virtually worthless if it's just a shell of a, of a processing facility with no throughput. And then the oil is taxed as property. Out here in California, school districts get 40% of property tax dollars. And so there's three things here. You've got the value of the oil taxed as property, the value of the, the processing facilities, and then the third thing you have is this, the, the, 
the Exxon platforms are in federal waters. So the actual lion's share of the losses is in the loss of royalty payments, both to the federal government and to the county. And this is one of the things that people don't understand that I always try to emphasize. The oil in state water doesn't belong to the oil company. The oil in the federal waters doesn't belong to the oil company. It belongs to the taxpayers. It belongs to, and so the royalties are paid in state waters to the state and the federal waters to the feds. Well, the suspected loss in federal royalties is three quarters of a billion dollars. Just from this one, uh, from Exxon. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, from Exxon, because Venico's in state waters. And the Exxon losses alone, we expect to be upwards of a billion dollars by the time this is all done. Wow, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And people, like you said, they don't, they don't get that. They don't get that, uh, you know, they see the low prices at the pump and they're excited about that, but they don't understand how keeping oil in the ground, uh, which is what, you know, the, the antis are, that's their new campaign, and, and what that economic impact is. Uh, what's going to happen in Santa Barbara County? With, with that well, shortfall. Here, here's, here's the deal, and this is how sick uh, California politicians are. Okay, the initial pipeline burst, they're going to be able to charge the pipeline company for that. They'll be able to, all the cleanup charges and everything else, they'll be able to bill the pipeline company. Now, my uh, I'm no lawyer, but my opinion is once, the pipeline company repaired the pipeline and they've cleaned everything up and they're ready to resume operations, my opinion is is that they are off the hook for any future royalty tax losses and what have you. The county is taking the position that as long as that pipeline is shut down, that oil company, the pipeline company is going to have to make up for the lost revenue streams to uh, the taxpayers. But the feds are who's keeping it closed. Right. And so we uh. think that once it was in the feds' hands, the company's off the hook. The county's banking on they're going to be able to sue them for their property tax losses, which we think is ridiculous. That is insane. That is absolutely insane. That's how, they, that's how insane they are. And so the bottom line, if this thing does, between the local losses, property tax losses to the schools, fire department, county government, and the federal royalties, if this thing gets shut down for five years, it will be a over $1 billion loss overall. And that's to one county? Uh, well, to the county and the federal government in terms of the federal royalties. Okay. It'll, be a billion, right. it'll be over a billion-dollar boondoggle. And we're about out of time, Andy, and so taxpayers are going to have to make that up, aren't they? Well, in some way, shape, or form, they are. And then plus, you know, we're going to have to make up the loss in the oil that we need for operating, uh, you know, the California economy. Yeah. Well, we're out of time, Andy Caldwell. Thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy and explaining, uh, you know, how, what this economic impact of just this one project is. And, you know, for, for our listeners, you can extrapolate that out uh, to see the impact in the whole country. Quick, give us the uh, website for Colab. 
uh, Colab SBC is in Santa Barbara County, colabsbc.org. Great. Andy Caldwell, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. And please stay tuned to listen in next week for the next edition of the show. Thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.